this time I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, and I have really tried to limit the sermon. So uh, just so you know, uh, I'm, I'm trying my best up here, okay? Um, I have limited it to only four pages of notes, which is uh, far shorter than normal. So uh, we'll see what that, what that turns into here today. Uh, it has been an honor to work through Hebrews 11 with you. Uh, hopefully you've been able to keep up with that, whether online or in person, and you've been able to follow through what the author of Hebrews says about God and about faith. I think the theme of these chapter, or this chapter, bold faith in difficult times, is a very timely message for us as followers of Jesus Christ. In this chapter, the ancient author of Hebrews follows the contours of his Bible to give us countless human illustrations of faith. He starts on the very first page of his Bible uh, when he, he asks us or he describes how faith is the basis of our acceptance of creation out of nothing by the power of God. He then moves through different figures of faith. He starts in the book of Genesis. He spends some time there. And then he goes through Exodus, through Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy uh, rather quickly. And he ended our, our last time in Joshua. Today, as we look at the last nine verses of the chapter, we'll consider uh, his summary of what happened from about the book of Judges in your Old Testament scripture the whole way through the end to Malachi. On today's sermon, uh, we're going to explore a passage that I think will help everyone who's here, every person who is here and who's able to understand what I'm saying. Now, if I wanted to have a sermon that was helpful to every person here, I could do a few different things. Uh, I could start, if I wanted to help every person, uh, by getting to know each one of you personally, considering uh, where you are coming from, your background, uh, considering what you believe, what you value, what you're facing now, the sort of circumstances you're in. I'm convinced that if I listened and studied your background, whether you came from the city or the country, it might help me understand more about you. I, I, I could uh, listen and study your backgrounds and beliefs, and I think I would have a better chance of ministering effectively to each one of you at that point. And uh, just as a side note, as a pastor of Colonial, the longer I'm here, the more I want to do that. I want to get to know you more and more so I can understand better how to help you. However, if I wanted to help everyone here today, I might also address a topic that is relevant to every person, every boy and girl, every man and woman, and that is what we're going to do today. Today, we're going to consider for these few minutes one of the most important topics found in Scripture. Well, it's easy to read these last verses of Hebrews 11 and to focus on all the human characters, all the human acts of faithfulness I will instead look at this text to see what we can learn about God for one of the most important purposes in preaching. One, one of the, the most important things for me to do is to portray to you a sound view of God from Scripture week after week, text after text, verse after verse. That's where I think this passage will be insightful and helpful to each one of us. This passage talks about how God treats the faithful in the midst of trial. And I'm going to summarize my outline by making three statements about God in this passage. So if you like to take notes out in the you know, summer heat, here are the three points. I, I'll just start with number one. First, in verses 32 through 35, we learn this about God. We learn God 
can intervene in miraculous and providential ways to deliver the faithful from trials and suffering. You just sang about it in one of the songs we sang, but let's look at it in verse 32. And what more shall I say, for time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. And we'll stop right there in the middle of verse 35. In these verses, we learn that God can intervene in miraculous and providential ways to deliver his people in the midst of trial. The verbs that are found in this text, are they're all either active or passive, but it, regardless, if they're passive, I think God is the one doing it. If it's active and is, if this is the way that people in this era demonstrated faith, it is also a result of the enablement of God through the Spirit. So I see everything that's going on in this text is a result of what God is doing. In verse 32, the author starts by showing off his rhetorical skills and wrapping this up. He asks, what more does he have to say? I mean, he's gone through this whole list of uh, faithful people in Hebrews 11. And, and then he explains that uh, time prevents him from taking his journey more comprehensively through the Old Testament scripture. He quickly then highlights three eras, in my opinion. He highlights the era of the judges. You can see that in the first four people who are listed in verse 32. They're all judges found in that book. He then moves on to the kings and the prophets. He talks about King David and Samuel. Here he lists six individuals, but the main emphasis is on him itemizing 10 different miraculous or providential acts of God on behalf of the faithful. These verses reveal how God sometimes works miracles or does other providential things on behalf of the faithful. Now, when I speak of miracles, what I mean by, by that is uh, a miracle is when God breaks through supernaturally to interrupt the normal rules of law and science and nature. He does something supernatural that no one can explain. This is miraculous. In this passage, I found at least three miracles. So if you're looking down your Bible, again, you're looking at this list, and you're trying to find the miracles of God. The first one I, I found was stopping the mouths of lions. And if you think you know which story that is, just go ahead and say it out loud. It's an informal story. What story? Yeah, Daniel, right? Daniel in the lion's den. Okay, I, I think that is a miracle from God. Those lions, of course, should have ripped and torn into Daniel, but they do not. And so uh, God does this miraculously to save him. The second miracle I found that, find in this list of 10 is him quenching the fires. What Old Testament story do you think that's describing, where some people were in the fire? Great. I heard a good Baptist in the back back there. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, right? And this is a miracle. There's no way men should be able to survive a fire. Okay, but God performs a miracle and delivers them. The third one I see is right at the end of this passage, 35 verse A, or section A, when it says that women receive their children back from the dead. Do any of you think you know which prophets of the Old Testament healed women's children and brought them back from the dead? Can you think of that? 
Elijah is one of them, and Elisha, the one who follows right after him, Elijah and Elisha here. And these are, of course, miraculous things. The children were dead, and God brought them back to life, helping Elijah and Elisha in their ministry to them. Those are miraculous things. I think the rest of these passages, uh, this passage, verses 33 and 34, are divine acts of providence. Providence would be natural and ordinary ways that God intervenes and helps people in this world. And so while we won't look at each one of these, uh, through faith, we learn that God enabled them to achieve three kinds of victories. Uh, that's how I take these seven. I think they're categorized in three groups. Uh, political successes in the text here. They had political successes in the old covenant era. They avoided death in miraculous ways and providential ways, and they also had military conquests. Okay, so that's the first point I want to make to you. God can miraculously or providentially intervene to deliver his people. And as a pastor, I think uh, one of the things as a shepherd I would want to say to you about this for us today is this belief is very important for us in our view of God. Okay, this, uh, you know, one of my concerns is that we would have a high view of God at Colonial Baptist Church and that we would avoid a few ditches. Okay, so I'm gonna describe one of the ditches here. One of the ditches that we need to avoid is having a pessimistic view of the power of God in our world today, okay? We need to be continually reminding ourselves of God's great power to intervene and to work on behalf of his children. He can still perform miracles. He can still do providential things to deliver us in the midst of trial and affliction. This past week, my family and I, uh, we went to the Outer Banks. I was getting ready for this service just by soaking in the you know, beaming hot sun the entire time. I sent some pictures to one of the staff members of uh, my shoulders and arms, and he was laughing. He said, you look like a lobster. Uh, well, I was trying to prepare for this, uh, this moment here with you. But as we, as we were there, one of the things I did is, you know, on vacation, sometimes you have some time to think. And so in some of the evenings, I, I, the Lord just struck me one night with the thought that I am now 44 years of age. And uh, if you're in your mid-40s, you probably like me and you realize, Man, I just don't feel like I'm, I'm, I'm that old, you know, in my mid-40s. I feel like I'm still a young child in some ways or another. Uh, and some of you are laughing uh, in the, uh, the older section over here, 44. That's so young, right? That's so young. Well, it struck me that in, in my family, men don't normally live very long. I don't know if it's something about like the, the tallness or whatever. Something breaks down in us. And so most men in my family live into their late 60s or 70s. And so it hit me that I'm likely two-thirds of the way through uh, my life. Now, as I'm around here, I'm hoping that some of your genes wear off because I do know of people in the 80s and 90s who are vibrant and still, still going. God has blessed them in that way. It struck me that I'm about two-thirds of the way through my earthly journey as a follower of Jesus Christ, and I do not want to have a pessimistic or low view of God for the last third or whatever, whatever I have left. I, so I, I spent some time this morning and, and last week reminding myself of verses regarding God's power. Here are some of my favorite. I love Psalm 147, uh, verses two, uh, two through uh, nine. Here in the great final Hillel Psalms, a psalm that says, the Lord heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars. That's who God is. He gives to all them their names. 
Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts down the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving, making melody to our God on the lyre. He covers the heavens with clouds. That's the sort of God we serve. He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. This is the power and the splendor of our great God, the God of creation, who not only designed it all, but he keeps it all running and sustains it. I love what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah chapter 10, verses 12 and 13 about God. He said, it is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom and his understanding stretched out to the heavens. When he uttered his voice, there is a tumult of water in the heavens. That's what Jeremiah says. He says, when God utters his voice, waters move in the heavens. He makes the mist rise from the, from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain and he brings forth, I love this text, he brings forth the wind out of his storehouses. That's the sort of arsenal that God has at his disposal. He, 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 when he speaks, waters move in the heavens. He brings mist and lightning and wind. Many of you know that one of my favorite New Testament authors is the Apostle Paul. And I love when Paul is confronting some stubborn Christians in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 19 and 20. He says this, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant boasters, but their power. Because the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. As I consider the last third of my life, that's the sort of ministry I want to be a part of. One where God demonstrates his power, not in human talk. I love Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. Don't you love these verses? Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think According to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in Christ, or in the church, and in Christ Jesus throughout every generation, forever and ever. Amen. These verses are just some of the ones that, as a 44-year-old man, I use to steady myself and to give me a deeper, higher view of God. God's powers are still manifested. These things are found in their, our Bible, and there is no scriptural teaching for us to limit or lessen our view of God's great power and what he can accomplish in and through us. Okay, so that's lesson number one. But then in verse 35, there's a shift. And uh, so look down in your Bibles again. Here we learn the second lesson about God. The second lesson is this. God does not always intervene in miraculous and providential ways to deliver the faithful from physical trials and suffering. He does not always. Look at verse 35, and just for you to see what I think is the key to this text, if you don't get anything else out here in this grass today, the key to this text is the shift that occurs in the middle of verse 35. For the author of Hebrews goes from Moments, uh, uh, describing moments of what we would call success and victory to moments of what we might think of as defeat and failure. Okay, so let's look at this shift. I'll start reading in verse 35 at the beginning just so you can see the shift. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two, they were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, 
destitute and afflicted and mistreated of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Again, in the middle of verse 35, the text turns a corner. So the subject is now how faith brought other Christians to a place of suffering and even martyrdom. Again, we won't look at every one of these in detail for sake of time, but the author here describes 13 ways that the faithful were mistreated. They were tortured, taunted, whipped, chained, imprisoned, stoned, sawn in two, killed with swords, clothed in primitive skins, and they lived in undesirable locations. This dramatic shift, I think, is important because of what it reveals to us again about God. And here we learn that God not only acts in miraculous ways, he also uses suffering to accomplish his purposes in this world. You see, God does not always intervene in miraculous and providential ways to deliver the faithful out of physical trials and suffering. He can, but he does not always. Now, some of the ways that God's people are persecuted and mistreated or tortured over the years throughout the history are simply brutal, right? And this list is a good example of that. The text starts by saying they were tortured. That's a very strong word, and I won't get into the specifics of that, but this word comes from another word that was used to speak of stretching something over a wheel, and it was often used in torturous situations of stretching human extremities or flesh over a wheel before it would be beaten or tortured. Text also says that they were whipped, flogged, they were put in chains in prison. When you get down to verse 37 in the text, you find three ways that Christians were martyred in the Old Covenant era. Of course, some of these continue in the New Covenant as well. He starts in verse 37, says some of them were stoned. Stoning was a brutal form of execution. It was performed not only by governments, but some, sometimes unofficially by the crowds. They would just choose to kill God's person. And so the prophets Zechariah and Jeremiah were killed in this way through stoning, if you study their books. By the way, in the New Covenant era, so was Stephen, the first Christian martyr. The apostle Paul somehow survived brutal stoning and and continued to go on, but stoning was a brutal form of murder. But perhaps to me, it's, it's even less brutal than the second one there, sawn in two, sawn in two. I think this describes traditionally, we think that the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah was sawn in two by wicked King Manasseh. Wicked King Manasseh. Can you imagine that form of thing? you imagine what this might teach some people about God? God does not always intervene to deliver people from trial and suffering and even death. And then finally there at the end of verse 17, he killed, some were killed with the sword. I like this description too, because uh, earlier, it, it just helps you see the contrast, because earlier up in verse 34, the text says that some escaped the edge of the sword, a very vivid way to describe, they narrowly escaped. God did that. They escaped the edge of the sword, but here they're killed by the sword. And men and women, God is active in that as well. And so I think it's here where our view of God becomes threatened. God can intervene through miracles and acts of providence to help his people, but he does not always do so. 
And so that leads us very naturally to ask one question, and this will be my third point. The, the third question is why? And we ask that question especially when we're going through physical trial or someone that we love. I know some people within our assembly here today have just recently and are recently now going through the loss of someone that they love very, very deeply. And so in those moments, sometimes we ask ourselves, why? God, you do, you, you do have the power. You could deliver, but you didn't. So why? And I think that's where verses 39 and 40 help us. And that's where we'll close. Look down in your Bible <clears throat> at verse 39. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Listen to this. Since or because God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. I like this word since here because it gives us some of the reasoning of God in what he did in the old covenant era. God had reasons and purposes that were deeper than perhaps any of the Israelite people ever knew. He had a deeper plan involving more than just the Israelite nation. And so in the Old Covenant, of course, we know that God, through his grace, gave them many good things. He gave them a tabernacle, gave them a temple, gave them priesthood, but those things were primarily for the Jewish people. But this text says God had something better. It's something better for us. I, I think there's something better you're to ask me what that is. I think the author has been telling us what the something better is all throughout the book of Hebrews. He keeps using this word better over and over and over again. Everything for us as new covenant believers is better than for the old covenant believers. We have better revelation. We have better relationship with Christ. We have better leader. We have a better priest. We have a better sacrifice. We have a better covenant. We have a better country. This something better, I think, arrived with Jesus' death and resurrection and with the final cleansing of our sins through him. This promise of something better was not only for the old covenant people, but it also involved us, perhaps especially for us. And it was accomplished through Christ's work so that, as the text ends here at the end of verse 40, so that we and they... I think they would be the old covenant Israelites, so that they and us as, as well would become fit worshipers of God. Every time we see the word perfect in Hebrews, I think that, that it kind of has that connotation to it, that he would make us complete, fit, worthy worshipers of God. And so it's that big plan that controlled God's acts both his miracles that he sent and the providential things he sent to deliver, but also the afflictions and the trials and the martyrdom of old covenant saints. And so this realization, men and women, I think will keep us out of another ditch. Okay, I said I have three points here today. Point one, God can deliver the faithful in miraculous and providential ways. Point two, God does not always do so, but point three, God's plans are often deeper than we realize. They're deeper than we realize. I think they're deeper than the Israelites realized, and they are for us as well. I think this helps us learn more about how God works in the lives of those of faith. I'd like to close with an illustration of a, of a woman in our church, and I will not name her. I don't want to in any way embarrass her talked with her often about this. This woman uh, came to our church just a few, a short while ago from another church. In her former church, 
she was told that her husband would recover from a terminal disease if he and she had stronger faith. Bold faith. You have bold faith? God will heal your husband. So they tried. They tried. But he did not recover. That counsel given to that woman just infuriates me. Makes me upset because I do, I do not think that reflects the character of God. God can do that. He does not always. And sometimes it's because he has deeper purposes. Both. Through God's grace, this woman realized that this teaching was wrong and did not adhere to Scripture. One of the reasons I think she came here. What she was told was a dangerous view of God that does not adhere to the Bible. Sometimes God's faith-filled people conquer or overcome physical limitations and trials. Other times, they're asked through faith to walk through those things for the glory of God. It's my commitment that we will not be a church that treats dying people like that. We are not going to say, through faith, you will be healed. We're not going to say that. No, we will say things like this. Lisa, Ann, George, Jeff, trust God. Whether you live or die through faith, he will care for you. Even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he will comfort you. He will lead you. You can trust him. You see, when God does not intervene, it's not because he's powerless or cruel or disconnected. Instead, he has sovereign purposes that we may or may not see in this world. Rest assured, however, that he has plans for you that include something better. He's fit you upon death to be a fit worshiper of Jesus Christ, be able to enter the presence of the one who sits on the throne and the lamb and to worship them. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to consider who you are. Lord, you know, uh, while on vacation, spending time thinking about the rest of my life and the sort of vision that I would have for the people of Colonial for this time, Lord, I, I pray that the vision that I would be able to demonstrate would be what this text says a very high view of you, a high view of your sovereignty and your plan. God, I'd pray that you'd help any person who is listening to preaching today that might think that God is not powerful enough to help them. Perhaps they're pessimistic for some reason or view in their life. Maybe they've been burned before in different ways by people, and so they just find themselves not trusting that you indeed do have the power to help them. I pray that they would avoid this ditch. I pray that they would always go to Scripture and, and comfort themselves and encourage themselves with some of the texts perhaps even I've used today that you can do far more than we ever can think or ask. But Lord, as well, I pray that you would encourage some who are going through trials and perhaps are tempted to think, why is God not delivering? And, and perhaps have some view of, of you that, is, that, that you're cruel or disconnected from events. Lord, may they 
as well be protected from this ditch on the other side? And might they believe that although you are powerful, you have sovereign purposes and plans that are much deeper and broader than we'll ever realize to glory? And I pray that that would be a source of encouragement to them. Might they also remember, might we also rejoice to, to, together today in the fact that you had a plan to provide something better for us, a better priest, a better sacrifice, a better leader, so that we are now new covenant believers, completely fit to be worshipers of you, completely prepared. Lord, thank you for this, and may this be our encouragement no matter what we face in this world, no matter what the trials or experiences we have are. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.